Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series on the book of Exodus with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about the house of God and the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 through 40. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Jim Jordan discussing Exodus chapters 25 through 40. We need briefly to survey the tabernacle and priesthood that was set up in the last third of the book of Exodus from chapters 25 to the end, and then focus a little bit more attention on the golden calf incident. And I need to say right at the outset that I have another series of tapes that are available from Geneva Ministries called The Garden of God, in which I discuss the meaning of the tabernacle and the temple in somewhat more detail, although neither in those tapes nor in these do we go into detail regarding the various items of furniture. But insofar as the tabernacle was a heaven and earth model symbolizing the mosaic economy, you'll find extended discussion of what that means in the series The Garden of God, available from Geneva Ministries. But here, by way of summary, we can say that Exodus 25 to 31 give us the order in which the tabernacle is to be built. And the first three chapters, 25 to 27, deal with the tabernacle itself, which was a tent, but a tent made of portable boards and rods overlaid with curtains. And the passage begins by telling that they're to take up contributions, and then it talks about the furniture that's put inside, and then it talks about the tabernacle itself and how it's built. And then we move into the court outside the tabernacle and what it was built of, the pillars of the court, slats of wood. And then in chapter 28 and 29, we move on to the priests, uh, particularly Aaron and the special garments that he was to wear and the atonement that was set aside the priests. In chapter 30, we have seemingly out of place the rules for the altar of incense, and then we have rules for continuing to take up money for the upkeep of the tabernacle. We have information about the anointing oil and the incense, and then we close the passage in chapter 31 with a statement that the Holy Spirit would give wisdom and guidance to Bezalel and Aholiab to lead in the construction of all of these things. And finally, the people are told to observe the Sabbath. And here again, the idea of the tabernacle is God is going to build a house and take his rest, and the people are also to take their rest. We are moving from slavery to Sabbath. Now, there are three things very briefly to say about the tabernacle and its place in the economy of God. First of all, the tabernacle was a world model or a heaven and earth model. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23, Hebrews 9:23 says, It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with blood. Now, that tells us, as do other verses in Hebrews, that the tabernacle 
was a copy of the things in heaven. And as a matter of fact, the inner room of the tabernacle, called the Holy of Holies, was an image of the highest heaven, the heavens where God dwells. And then the holy place, which was the court outside the Holy of Holies, was an image of the firmament heavens. And if that was the case, then the court of the tabernacle, which was outside the tent itself, but was staked off with this wall, that represented the Garden of Eden, the earthly sanctuary. And outside of it was the land of Palestine, which was the land of Eden, and outside of it was the world, which was the outlying world. These five environments are given to us here in the architecture. God himself was enthroned in the tabernacle. Secondly, it was a house for God. Since it was a heaven and earth model and God is enthroned in the highest heavens, then God put his presence in the Holy of Holies that represented the highest heavens. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was several things, but one of the things it was was a throne. And standing on the two ends of the Ark of the Covenant were cherubim with their wings stretched out over the top of the Ark, forming a kind of a flat area. And the idea was that God was sitting upon the wings of the cherubim, and his feet were resting upon the gold slab of the ark. And so he was seated enthroned above the cherubim and they held up his throne and the ark was his footstool. And this is where God's throne was and it was his house. And since God was enthroned there, finally then the tabernacle was a place to approach God. Now, in the Old Testament, you couldn't approach God directly because of sin. And each of the curtains that separated the environments of the tabernacle were embroidered with cherubim, reminding us of the cherubim that guarded the way to the tree of life at the gate of Eden with their flaming sword. And these cherubim embroidered curtains said, man is not to approach God. Man is excluded because of sin until Jesus Christ comes. And so the only way in which men in the Old Testament were allowed to approach God symbolically, of course, let me add, they could always pray to God wherever they were. But in order to symbolize their exclusion from heaven, they couldn't formally and liturgically approach God except through mediators. Only the priests were allowed to go into the holy place, and only the high priest was allowed to go into the holy of holies, and then only once a year. So, because the tabernacle was a world or heaven and earth model, and it had the highest heavens in it, Therefore, it was a house for God, and God was enthroned in it. And because God was enthroned in it, it was a place where God could be approached, but he could only be approached through mediators. And if we were to make a detailed study of all the details of the tabernacle, then we would see this in more, well, we would see this repeated over and over again in various aspects. The second thing that we have in these chapters is the priest himself, Aaron. And we have details concerning his garments and what they were supposed to look like. And there are, again, three things to be said about him. First of all, just as the tabernacle was a heaven and earth model, so the priest, his garments, were a new Adam model. Adam was supposed to rule the heavens and earth, except for the highest heavens, but he was supposed to take dominion over the earth anyway. And because he failed, he was cast out. Well, now we have a new Adam. 
And this new Adam is robed in glorious garments given him by God as Adam lost his initial glory. And the high priest then symbolized the need for a second Adam, a new Adam, and thus pointed to Jesus Christ. But his garments, which were fine materials, were woven with gold. On his chest was a breastplate made of twelve precious or semi-precious gems. And these are called garments of glory and beauty. Garments of glory and beauty. And they speak of him as a new Adam in a new garden. And they point to Jesus Christ. Well, there again, because the priest was a new Adam, therefore he was a representative for his people. Just as Adam represented all of us, and when he fell, we fell. And just as Jesus represented all of us, and in his death and resurrection, we are saved. So the high priest was a representative of the people. And this was symbolized in his garments. On his shoulders were two onyx stones that had the twelve tribes of Israel, names of them written on them. And on his heart was this breastplate that had the twelve stones, which also had the twelve tribes of Israel's names engraved upon them, one tribe for each stone. And in this way, the high priest carried the people on his shoulders and on his heart. He bore them up. And he loved them with all of his heart. And when he ministered before God, then he represented the people on his shoulders and on his heart. Finally, he was the only person who was allowed in, and only once a year. And this signified that under the Old Covenant, men were not allowed to come into God's presence, not officially. And it would remain for Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to pass into the true heavens, heavens made without hands, and represent us on his shoulders and heart and open the gates of heaven for us so that we can now officially draw into God's presence any time and especially every Sunday. Well, that's what the priest was for and that's what his garments represented and all the details are there. Finally, we can comment on the oil and the incense. There are directions for that. All the spices that have to go into the oil and all the spices that have to go into the incense that's burned inside the tabernacle. The oil was poured over everything and the incense burned there the whole time. And this permeation with oil and incense and this particular smell was a symbol of the Spirit of God permeating the environment and making it a true spiritual house an environment of the Spirit. Because ultimately, it's the Spirit Himself who is the environment in which Christians live and move and have their being. And what happens once the tabernacle is built in chapter 40, as we'll see, is that God's glory cloud comes down and permeates the building with God's own smoke, the smoke of that fire and cloud that is the environment in which God dwells. And so the continual incense permeating the house with smoke and the continual oil all over everything represented the Holy Spirit and represented God's permeation of the house, making it his own and signifying that the architecture was only a symbol for a spiritual reality. Well, that's as much as we really can say in our survey concerning the tabernacle. To go further, we'd have to start getting into a lot of details that we just can't take the time for. After, or rather during the time that Moses was up on the top of the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, 
the people were losing heart. They forgot to be afraid of God as he had revealed himself at Mount Sinai, and they forgot who he was. They forgot that God had provided them bread and water in the wilderness. They forgot about the manna. They forgot about the ten plagues. They forgot about Moses. And they decided that they wanted some type of a visible statue or idol through which they could approach whatever God it was that had delivered them. And that is what the incident of the golden calf is all about in chapters 32 to 34. To begin to understand some of the fullness of what's happening here, we need to remember or realize that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was a recreation event. The world falls apart because of sin, and then God recreates it. And the chronology that we looked at in the previous tape sets out six days at Mount Sinai, and then it's on the sixth day that the law is given and the people are restored. And that's just like in the Genesis 1 account where man is created on the sixth day. And so the people are given the law of God and they're promised the garden of God and God takes care of them with manna just as there was food for them free of charge in the Garden of Eden. But then they fall into sin. And just as they fell into sin with an animal in the Garden of Eden, so they fall into sin with an animal here. So we come to the fall and in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 32, we have the beast. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, let's make gods. You make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, all of a sudden it wasn't God, but just a man who brought him up. We don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then the people tore off the gold rings that were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So Aaron tries to refocus their attention on the Lord, but without success. The next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they sin in connection with an animal, and they commit spiritual adultery with this animal, this icon. Spiritual bestiality, just as Eve committed spiritual bestiality in the garden. The commentators feel that probably the conception was that unlike in the tabernacle where God rides on the cherubim, the idea here was that God rides on this bull. But more likely, at least for most of the people, they saw the bull as an image of God itself. At any rate, they commit idolatry and forget the Lord. They eat and drink and rise up to play. In Genesis 26, verse 8, we have the same Hebrew word where it says Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And the idea here seems to be that they are moving in the direction of fertility cult worship and experiences. Well, God tells Moses what's going on. And in verses 7 to 14, we see Moses act as a mediator between the sinful people and the holiness of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Again, this time it's Moses who brought them up. The Lord is going to reject them. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned quickly aside from the way that I commanded them. 
They made a molten calf and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. And the word see means judge here, just as in Genesis 1, God saw what he had made and it was good. Well, here God sees the people and he sees that they're bad, stiff-necked. Let me alone that my anger may burn against them. I'll destroy them and make of you a great nation. So God says, I'll start over again like Abraham, but with you. Now, the fact that God says, let me alone, leaves open the possibility of intercession. Because Moses will choose not to leave God alone. And Moses argues with God. And in verse 11, he argues, O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought out? So the first argument is that these are God's people. And the second argument is in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains? Turn from thy anger and change thy mind. So the second argument is with God's name that God's name will be dishonored. It will seem that God is evil. And then in verse 13, the argument is from God's oath and promise. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants. So here are three arguments. First, these are your people, Lord, though they're in sin. Second argument, if you do this and destroy them, then the wicked will say bad things about you. They'll think that you're a capricious God who breaks covenant. And third, remember the covenant you have made and the promises you've made in the past. So the Lord changed his mind, and Moses was an effective mediator for the people. Well, then Moses came down and put the people through a ritual to determine who was guilty and who wasn't. He turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work. The writing was God's writing engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of triumph, nor the sound of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And it came about as soon as Moses drew near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. That's where the covenant had been made in the first place, at the foot of the mountain. Remember, the blood sprinkled on the representatives of the people. And here, the tablets are shattered at that place. The breaking of the tablets means that the covenant has been broken. And then he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. If we were to look at Numbers 5, we'd find that there is a ritual prescribed if a husband suspects his wife of infidelity. A drink is made from the dust of the tabernacle floor, and she is to drink it, and if she becomes sick in a particular kind of a way, then that indicates that she is guilty. And if she's not sick, then she's not guilty. Here, he does the same kind of thing. The calf is ground up and scattered over water, and the people are made to drink it. And those who are guilty would get sick, and those who are not guilty would not. And this would reveal who had sinned and who hadn't. Well, Moses, choose out Aaron. What did this people do to you that brought this great sin upon them? That you brought it on them. And Aaron said, Don't let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, how prone they are to evil. And they asked me to make a god for them. And I said, Well, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So it was just a miracle. I didn't have anything to do with it. Well, that's a lie. We've already been told that Aaron engraved the thing. Now, when Moses saw the people were out of control, 
for Aaron had let them get out of control so that they were a derision among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. Now they were his own tribe members. What happens here is real important because the Levites will become the priests in Israel and this is the occasion that does it. The priest is a guardian who guards God's holiness. And the Levites on this occasion are willing to be those guardians. And that makes them priests. And so Moses said to the Levites, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now these were the people that were sick as a result of the ritual of jealousy. We can contrast the 3,000 men that died on this occasion with the 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.41. It's the difference between the Old and New Covenants. The Old Covenant ministered death and only showed that someday life would come. The New Covenant ministers life. Then in verse 29, Moses said, Your hand has been filled today to the Lord, for each one of you has been against his son and against his brother, in order that God may bestow a blessing upon you today. And this phrase, your hand has been filled, indicates that it's at this time that they were given the priesthood. Up to this time, the fathers and firstborn of each house and clan had been the priests in Israel, but by their actions, by their sin at the golden calf, they had forfeited the priesthood. And by their action, Levi gained the priesthood, and this was the occasion on which they did it. This is also told, by the way, in Deuteronomy 33, 8-10. They had acted as guardians, and so they were given the priesthood in Israel. Deuteronomy 33, 8-10. Well, that's the fall and the judgment that came about as a result. When men fall, then they are exiled from God. There was no place to drive the people out to, so God himself left their midst and took his tabernacle outside. Now the tabernacle that we think of had not been built at this time, but there was already some type of a tent of meeting the Jews had developed during their centuries in Egypt. And this tent of meeting, this proto-tabernacle, is what we'll be concerned with now because God will insist on withdrawing from the people. Moses asked God to forgive the people in verses 30 to 35, and the Lord said, Well, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. But now you go ahead and lead the people where I told you. My angel will go before you. But in verse 1 of chapter 33, the Lord said, Depart from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land that I swore to Abraham, but I will not go up in your midst. Verse 3, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. So God insists on separating himself from the people and not being in the center with them anymore. And when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb forward. Now God has withdrawn from the people, and they are separated. Chapters 33 and 34 give us the restoration, a reconciliation between God and the people, and God changing his mind and being willing 
to go back with them. Uh, but we're still in exile right now. And in verses 7 to 11, we find that Moses used to take the tent, that's the tent of meeting, this proto-tabernacle, and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. It came about that everyone who sought the Lord would have to go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would rise and stand, each at the entrance to his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So here again, this is that Shekinah chariot. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. They had to worship at a distance, you see. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, Moses argues with God, and he argues kind of indirectly that God would restore his people. He prays, and God grants him his request in verses 12 to 16. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. That's singular. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. In other words, these people are just like me. If I belong to you, then they do too. And Moses says, you said you'd bring us up, but you haven't told me, since you're not going to do it, you're not going to be in the camp, then who is? And... That's an indirect way of arguing with God and saying, you should come back and be with the people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God says he will go with them. And then Moses said to him, if thy presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Moses always puts the people together with himself, just as Jesus puts us together with him. Is it not by thy going with us? so that we, I, and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, and see, Moses is still arguing that God not only go with them, but come back into their midst. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So he says that he'll go with them, and that means that he will go in their midst. So that takes care of the problem. Now, Moses says, I pray thee, show me thy glory. This is kind of a bold request on this occasion here. And God says that he can't really show his glory to Moses because it's still the old covenant. But he can show part of his glory. God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord. Not the front side of God's name, but the back side of his name, to use the symbolism that comes to the fore here. I will pronounce the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So not face to face. There's a sense in which God talked to Moses face to face, but there's a sense in which he didn't. And that awaits the new covenant. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. And you will stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. 
And the same thing is true of the name that's going to be pronounced. The name I am that I am, no man can understand. But a description, sort of the backside of God's name, which will be given to Moses, an extended description of God's attributes, that can be known. Well, hiding in the rock is always seen as being in union with Christ and hiding in Christ. And in Christ, we can see God. And that's the typology here. Well, now the Lord told Moses that he would renew the covenant. He says, cut out for yourself two stone tablets, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets that you shattered. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Now don't let anybody come with you, and we'll go through it again just as we did before. And so Moses cuts out the two stone tablets like the former ones and goes early in the morning to Mount Sinai. And then we have this name of the Lord pronounced. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called out with the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. So the backside of God's name. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So that is the glory of God. And we don't have to see it, we can read it. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. And do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, take us as thine own possession. So, Moses persuades God to go along in the midst, and God renews the covenant with them, and that enables him to go along with them. Now, we have laws here, verses 10 to 26, that summarize the laws that were given before. There's an emphasis here in verse 14. You shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And, of course, that phrase fits because of the way the people had committed harlotry, spiritual harlotry, with the golden calf, and it provoked God to jealousy. And God had made them go through the jealousy ritual of drinking the water, as we saw. But the law is basically repeated and reiterated here, especially the ceremonial aspect because of the golden calf incident. And then Moses writes it down. And Moses is up on the mountain another 40 days and 40 nights, and God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets that Moses cut out. Thus the covenant is renewed and God is restored to the people after their sin and things are back the way they were supposed to be. One other thing to notice here is the transfiguration of Moses. Moses spent time with God and the result was he became glorious. If we spend time with God, we become glorious too. We go from glory to glory. And so we read, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came. And Moses did not realize that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. Moses wasn't aware of it because a humble man is not aware of his own glory. But Moses' face shone. And Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. Whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. 
the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. And when he was before God, that would renew the glory that was reflected through Moses. Now the New Testament tells us that that glory faded in time because the glory of the Old Covenant was not enduring. But it says that we all now with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed, transfigured from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's through worship and talking with God that we are transfigured. And this is what all of Israel was offered. If they had drawn near to God and been faithful, they could have become more and more glorious. Well, then, the rest of the book, there's no way to survey in detail. We just have the chapters 35, where the people begin to build the tabernacle. 35 talks about how the people brought contributions for the tabernacle and the high priest garments. Chapter 36, 37, and 38 talk about the building of all of these things. Chapter 39 talks about the creation of the high priest garments and everything else. And there's a summary statement that everything had been completed. Then in chapter 40, God moves in. On the first day of the first month of the new year, they're told where to put everything and how to structure the tabernacle. And then to consecrate Aaron. And the tabernacle, we read, was erected and everything was put in its proper place in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. And we're given the details there. And then at the end of the book, God moves in. Thus Moses finished the work, verse 33. And verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, making it his home. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. So it was an architectural image, you see, of God's glorious environment. And then we read that throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. They would collapse the tabernacle because God wasn't in it anymore, pack it up and move on. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. So throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. And that's the way the book of Exodus closes. God enthroned between the cherubim, above the cherubim, enthroned in his own Sabbath rest, and the people moving toward the Sabbath rest of the Holy Land. We've come a long way from enslavement to Sabbath. We've been through sin and restoration. But now the faithful God will lead his people on to the promised land. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.